You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. The podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, my sexy disabled lovers. It's almost Valentine's Day and my friends adamandeve.com want me to let you know that they have some really cool Valentine's Day offers for you. And so I want to let you know all about it right now. Get comfy, cozy, and crippled. Open your box of chocolates and let me tell you all about it. Free stuff is the best stuff. But free stuff that will ignite your sexy disabled Valentine's Day is even better. Check this out. When you go to adamandeve.com and select almost any one item, you'll get it at 50% off. That's amazing by itself, but it gets even more amazing because they load on the free stuff. When you enter my exclusive code, only for Disability After Dark listeners, at checkout, which is DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, not only do you get the one item at 50% off, you'll also get 10 free gifts for your Valentine's Day pleasure. And let me tell you all about them. First, you'll get six free movies that you can download for your viewing pleasure. You can watch them with a sexy partner on Valentine's Day, or you can eat that box of chocolates and watch them by yourself if you want to. But six free movies, that's amazing. I love free movies, that's great. Go ahead and get that. You will also get a free mystery pack that includes an item for penis havers and an item for vulva havers, and it's something I know you'll definitely enjoy. Plus, with all this, you get free shipping, and that's pretty awesome for Valentine's Day. Who doesn't want a free Valentine's Day gift? That's pretty cool, right? So again, if you want to get all this free Valentine's Day stuff, make sure at checkout you use the code DARKPOD. So you go to adamandeve.com and you use the, the code DARKPOD. Again, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, and you will get all of those things. One item for 50% off, the movies, the mystery pack, all that stuff for Valentine's Day, which you can use with a partner or yourself on Valentine's Day. Get that stuff now. D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, darkpod at checkout at adamandeve.com. Take advantage of it, listeners, right now. Happy Valentine's Day! Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. 
Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. My name is Andrew Gerza. I am your disabled Dick Smith, your number one queer cripple, your bear in a chair, all those things. So let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this episode started. First things first, I want to thank one of the people who supports the show via Patreon. They headed over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledged some money to get the show one day early. A weird shout out for me. And in this case, they pledged $5 a month to build a show with me. And that person is Diane Alaska. Diane Alaska, I was going to do a pun that rhymed with Alaska and all I could think was ask ya, and I couldn't come up with a cool, rhymey pun for that, so thanks for your pledge. Also, Diana, you told me in my, in your email to me that you gave yourself this as a Christmas gift, which I think is really nice. Thank you so much for pledging, and you want to build a show around a really cool topic um, that I want to keep secret from the listeners until I until I set it up, but I'm so excited to do your topic. I can't wait. Thank you for your pledge. Also, for pledging, you're probably listening to this episode, the ad-free version, on our Patreon right now. When you pledge $1 a month, $5 a month, whatever, you can you can pledge to the show. You get the ad-free versions now. I take out the first two minutes of the show full of ads, and I just play the episode for you without the ads. But thank you. So much for pledging, and if you want to support the show, you can do it too at our Patreon, patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. But now, on to the show. On the show today, I sit down with my new friend and psychotherapist, Dr. Lee Phillips, as we talk about his experience with Lyme disease, his experience dealing with Lyme disease and trying to be still a sexual person, his experience being a psychotherapist, and how he works with patients with chronic illness, and talks with them about chronic illness and disability, and how all those things interplay for him as he works as a psychotherapist. And I thought this was a really interesting chat to talk with a, th- with a psychotherapist who experienced disability to kind of bring them into this space and ask them questions about their about his practice, about his work, about sexuality and disability, about his experience with Lyme. Really, and it's a really important topic, Lyme disease, because we're getting so much more and more people are coming out and saying, I have this, this illness, I have all this thing. And so to talk about it from a sex-positive stance was also really important and really fun. Dr. Lee was also really fun to chat with. We had a couple laughs in the show. It was a really great talk, and I'm excited to share it with you today. So without further ado, here's my interview with kink-aware therapist, Dr. Lee Phillips, right now on Disability After Dark. Dr. Lee Phillips, hello. Hello, how are you, Andrew? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark. 
Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to, to be with you this morning. I, I really love your podcast and I love the work that you do um, and the activism that you do. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here. I've been following you for a while on social media. Yeah, so. no, I appreciate that. I remember you reached out to me initially to do this a while ago. Yes. It, it took us a while to set it up, so I'm glad it's finally happening. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, it's great to be here. Fantastic. So... Doctor, do you want to call you Doctor Phillips Lee? What should I call you? You can call me Doctor Lee. That's what most people call me. All right. So, <laughs> so Doctor Lee, we were just talking before we hit record about how you're in DC, which is yes. awesome, and it's Mid Atlantic leather there right now. Um, it is. It's going to be fun this weekend. There's going to be the city's great when when Mal gets here because there's so many different types of people that come to it. And so and there's going to be different vendors and there's going to be lots of leather and lots of harnesses. So it will be great. I've always wanted to go to another event like that, like a big, sexy, sweaty, like slutty leather event. <laughs> and I've never yes. gone and I really want to go. So a little you bit have to. You should come next year. So anyone that's listening, if you want to sponsor a bear in a chair to come to that event, let me know because I'll yeah. let someone fly me out. <laughs> yes, it will be fun. It's just so many vendors and like different leather and, you know, there's different parties going on. The gay clubs are packed See, the whole weekend. That's what so. I want to, that's what I want to experience. I want to go to like one of the big gay clubs there during a big leather weekend and like just be... And get and just be naughty, right? And just be really inappropriate <laughs> with a lot of different people. <laughs> with consent and love, of course. Of, of course. course. Of course. It's all about consent and love. So, but yeah, it's it's a great, it's a great time. It should be nice. Um, I also didn't expect that you would be so into leather because from your, from what I, what I saw in you, what I saw of you on social media didn't make me think of leather so much. You know, I I really I really enjoy leather. I think it's sexy. I love the way that it smells. My husband loves leather. You know, we're very I identify as a kink polyamorous queer therapist and you know, we're so lucky to have each other. We're both very open. He supports me, I support him. And so we did not even get into that until like just a little over a year ago. So a lot changed in our partnership, which I think is great because I think that happens as a partnership, you know, evolves over time. So, so yes, I consider myself um, like a kink aware and poly aware therapist too. So I have a lot of folks that come to me who are kinky that are also like into BDSM and other types of kink. So amazing. Uh, and so before we get into all that, because I do want to, I do want to touch on all your work as a, a psychotherapist. But before I do all that, I want to ask you my first question, which is: Do you, Doctor Lee, identify as a disabled or chronically ill person? And if you do, how does that affect your day to day life? I was diagnosed with Lyme's disease in 2012, and so I'm very passionate about working with other folks that are disabled, that have disabilities, that have chronic illnesses. It. It impacted my life in the beginning. Um, I am stable, but I do feel as um, I still have some of the residual symptoms of it. Like I have joint pain. I am on medications for migraines. So it's a day. I consider myself a spoonie. I mean, it's a day to day battle sometimes, especially when the weather changes. Um, so that really sparked my interest in working with other people that experienced uh, disabilities and chronic illness. And so when I moved to DC, 
I attended a building your private practice workshop and the woman that facilitated the workshop, who is now one of my mentors, she asked me, she said, have you ever thought about becoming a sex therapist? Because there's so many people with disabilities, with chronic pain and chronic illnesses that want to reclaim their sexuality. And I was like, holy shit, that's really cool. So let me take my experience working in chronic illness and combine it with sexuality. And so that's how all of this really started for me. Wow. I mean, that's, I mean, so, so let's, let's back up a little bit. So I know some people who, who were living, who live with Lyme and who have dealt with that. And it's so scary. It's such a scary thing because it, it's so, from at least from what I've read and from what I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's, it's very variant in how it presents itself. So somebody, one person with Lyme could be totally quote unquote normal looking and one person could be in a wheelchair the next day and unable to like lift their head or eat or like feed themselves. Is that correct? It is correct. It's a very, it is one of those illnesses, kind of like your other illnesses, which are also known as dynamic illnesses because you can go into relapse mode with them and like flare ups. So I think when I think of Lyme, I think of just a lot of uncertainty. You know, you don't know what's going to happen from day to day. Now, when I was diagnosed, they believed that I had caught it early, which was great. Um, but I don't remember being bit by a tick, but I lived in a wooded area and I never would get a good signal on my phone. So in the summertime, I would walk outside all the time barefoot because I just love to walk around barefoot. <laughs> and I think that's what, <laughs> and I think that's what happened. I was bit by a tick and I became very sick like a week later to where I went to a neurologist and that's who diagnosed me. And I had to ask um, my doctor to refer me. She didn't really know what was going on. And so he did a blood work a lot of blood work on me and it turned out that it came up positive for Lyme. So no. I was a little, I was a little relieved that there was a diagnosis. Yeah. You because, know? And then because a lot of doctors, from what I hear, people who, who live with Lyme and who fought to, they had to fight just to get tested because most physicians will say like, Oh no, it's not Lyme. It must be this. Like those, they'll, they'll spend so much time on differential diagnoses that they won't actually test for what, it could be, which is Lyme. That's exactly right. And, you know, I have a lot of clients that come to me and they tell me that sometimes they just don't feel heard by their doctor or they didn't by one doctor. So they went to another doctor and then they finally had to go to a specialist and then the specialist did the test. What's also interesting with Lyme is that when the test comes up negative, there is a possibility that you can still have it because the bacteria that causes Lyme is called big Borrelia bigdorferi, and it's a corkscrew-shaped spirochete, and it digs into the tissue of your body. So it's it's very scary. It's it's actually, to be quite honest, it's a disgusting disease. I mean, it I really mean, is. That I mean, sounds really <laughs> sexy. It digs into your wow, like that sounds so hot. <laughs> it digs into your tissues like something else does, right? Wow, wow. Okay. <laughs> All right, I was not connecting that with Lyme, but, no. but now well, you went was, there. So you, you went there, so I went there. I did. It's true. I did open that door. Open that, that door. door. You you opened that door, Andrew. Yes, I did. I opened. Is it the, was it the back door that I opened? Because I mean, um, yeah, you did. So, so, but I mean, no, I mean, you're right in saying that it is. It is a really insidious disease because it. Once it attaches to you, from what I understand, it it's it stays it there. Stays 
It, it does. It does. And there's treatments. I was on medications for three months. And after I finished the medication, they tested me again and my tests were negative, but I started, to, I still had migraines and joint pain. Fun. So, uh, yeah, but you know, things have gotten better over the years. I mean, I, one of the things that I do is that I listen to my body and that's what I talk to my clients about in therapy. And I think that kind of has really helped me over the years. I mean, listening to your body can be, you know, in our culture, just generally listening to your body is like not something many of us do. A lot of us do the thing, especially if if we're already living with a disability, like your disability is acquired, I would say, or your set of illnesses is acquired by the by the Lyme. But mm -hmm. my, my disability is, is congenital where I kind of grew up with it. So when I have right. pain, right. my first thought is, oh, no, it's just disability pain. It'll go away. And so... I have an issue where I don't really listen to my body because I'm like, oh, no, it's just CP or it's just disability. It'll go away. Mm -hmm, exactly. So one of the things that I talk about with my clients or couples that I come in, because sometimes I have a, a couple that will come in and one, one partner has a disability. And so learning how to build a life with it and learning how to listen to your body and pay attention. And one of the things that I talk about in my sessions is pacing for pain, meaning that you wake up every day and you just kind of take a self inventory of how your body feels. And then you, you go along with your day because what happens a lot of times with chronic illnesses that cause chronic pain, you can wake up one day and feel like a million bucks and then wake up the next day and you feel like a fucking truck hit you. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Uh, so that happens. And then you're down for the count for about, you know, five days. And so, because, you know, when you feel good, you're going to do all the things. You're going to clean your entire house. You're going to go out and run your errands. But I really try to encourage my clients to take one task at a time and spend your energy on something that you really want to spend it on. And if the other things can wait, have them wait. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you Now, do you, as a, as, a, as a doctor, do you tell people that you have chronic illness too? Like when they, when they come into your office and be like, oh... I want somebody that listens to me. Like I want to be heard. I want to feel like I'm talking to someone that gets it. Do you disclose? You know what? I, I do. I do disclose. And, you know, the reason I was always taught in psychotherapy, you disclose to benefit the client. It's not to benefit me. I'm just trying to build a therapeutic relationship with the client. And I find that when I do share with them that I have a chronic illness, it really, it really does open the door to a therapeutic relationship and they feel more comfortable. They, they feel comfortable talking to me. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was talking to another friend of mine who does similar work and the, she was talking to one of her colleagues and they said, oh, no, you shouldn't disclose. Like, you should protect yourself. And she was like, why would I not tell somebody? Of course, I'm going to tell somebody because it'll open them up to me and it'll make them feel comfortable. And I, I in all the years, because I used to do a lot of um, cognitive behavioral therapy with, with mm -hmm. therapists and I found it so troubling because they were never disabled and I would have to spend the majority of my time explaining disability to them for a good hour and then I exactly and then I would yeah. be like well what am I paying you for why did I why am I paying you so that you can learn from me what disability is like absolutely and the one thing that I, I never tell clients you know I never and they teach you this when you're in school studying to become a psychotherapist I never tell clients I know what you're going through because your story is different from mine. But what I do share is that I have a chronic illness. I've struggled with it. 
I tell them that mindfulness and supportive therapy and taking care of my body is what has saved me. Because when they come in to see me, they're sometimes they're just newly diagnosed. They may not know what they have going on. They're searching for a diagnosis or they were just diagnosed and they're in a crisis phase right now. Yep. And so I think that's important to them to let them know, hey, you can still have a life with this. You can build a life with it. And, and then... And then when I talk to them about me being a sex therapist, that really comes up. And they're like, oh, my gosh, well, I want to be more sexual again. So it's, it's great work. What was that diagnosis kind of like that? Did, did you go through that crisis period yourself where you had to, like, reconfigure everything for yourself and get comfortable with the yeah. idea of being, quote, unquote, sick? You know what? I really did. I mean, there was a point where... I had so much depression and anxiety. I am a very bubbly guy. I'm very sociable. I love talking to people. Oh, I love, I, I've, I've seen you on social media. I know how bubbly you are. <laughs> I love. <laughs> but I, there was a point where I wouldn't even get, I didn't get out of the bed. I mean, I was depressed. I had low sexual desire. I'm a very sexual person too. And I didn't have really any sexual desire. Um, you know, arousal was low and, but once I started to get the treatment, know what it was and learn to live with it and make the best out of it, all of that changed. You know, my depression decreased, my anxiety decreased. My thing is this, everyone has anxiety. When I have clients that come into my office and they go, I suffer from anxiety. I'm like, well, can you tell me what that means? Because how does that manifest? Because we all have anxiety. We, yeah. we get anxious. And so, but I noticed that the severity of my anxiety, it did decrease a lot. So I share that with clients sometimes, and especially in the beginning stages of therapy, just to let them know, hey, I went through this. I, I've done well with it. I'm learning. To, I'm continuing on my journey. And I think when you have a disability and you're a chronic illness, it is a journey for you and yeah. you're constantly on it. And I think it's really important what you said there about like, about yeah, we all have anxiety and that's all possible for all of us. But also it's important to look at it for every person, anxiety or disability can manifest in a completely different way. So I think- Completely different ways, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where like we, when we're talking about, because a lot of people say when it comes to disability, a lot of people will, will kind of flippantly and like, un, they won't realize, they'll say like, oh yeah, that happens to everybody. Oh yeah, that's a common thing. What I think we need to do when we talk about disability is that, sure, certain disabilities may be more common, but the way they manifest is completely different. And I think we need completely to different. Right. It's almost like with a, a dynamic illness, right? So let's, let's say, for an example, multiple sclerosis. One person may have different symptoms than another person, and it's going to manifest in different ways. And so I think looking at each person individual, individually is critical. Yeah, completely. Same, yeah. same with disabilities like cerebral palsy. One person with cerebral palsy can be ambulatory and have very mild symptoms. Absolutely. You totally, mm -hmm. you couldn't even tell they had CP. And the next person could be a wheelchair user, could be uh, not able to speak, could be not able to feed themselves, could be, could have intellectual disabilities as well. So I really think, the, I, I like what you say about having a dynamic approach to this kind of stuff because mm -hmm. sure we can look for markers, but I think it's important to look at, to, to understand that each of these things, whether it's a chronic illness or more or a disability, um, they can be, they can manifest in completely different ways. And I think we need to be aware of that when we talk about disability just generally now. 
I agree with you because like you, like you just said, I mean, it really is different for everyone. And I've had a few clients in therapy that have had cerebral palsy and each and every one of them were completely different from each other. Yeah. I mean, there, again, there are markers of CP, like you can like, you know, yeah. the, the leaning to one side is often a thing you can tell, but, but most of us have completely different presentations. Absolutely. Um, I want to go into, to, I want to just back up when you were saying that your sex drive was low when you first got when you first contracted Lyme, um, how, and you said you, you know, you're usually a really sexual person. Like, can you share with us, like, what was your sex drive prior to the diagnosis? And like, what was your sexual activity? Oh my gosh. All the time. I wanted sex. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted sex. I wanted sex like a few times a week, every day, you know, um, I was someone that masturbated every day. Of course. I mean, who, well, not everyone masturbates every day, but... Um, I wish I could masturbate every day. <laughs> right. So, you know, and then when that happened, it just turned my life around. I had no desire. I didn't want to touch myself. I went through a series of depression. And I think, you know, there's many reasons why people have low desire. And I don't think illness or disabilities gets talked about enough. And I think that's something that does need to be talked about. You know, I think there are more doctors out there that when someone's come in, they're chronically ill. I have found that some doctors will say, you know, you need, there's three things I need you to do. I need you to try to take care of yourself, reduce your stress. And the other thing is um, try to exercise if you can, or do some type of movement with your body. And then I need you to go see a psychotherapist, which I think is great because it allows someone to come into a safe space and to be able to really talk about what they're going through. So just on a sidebar, what is the difference between a cognitive behavioral therapist and a psychotherapist? They both can be the same thing. Um, a cognitive behavioral therapist is known as a psychotherapist, but maybe they just have a specialty in doing cognitive behavioral therapy work, which I think is great. I use it every day in my practice. Um, you know, that is the common therapy that's always been used in sex therapy when people have had sexual dysfunction. But I find that when people get into therapy, you can start doing the CBT work because they come in with anxious thinking, depressive thinking, but things go much deeper than that, you know? And I think you can really get down to the bottom of it and look at attachment. What messages did they receive as a child when it came to sex? How sexual were they prior to a disability or chronic illness, you know? So that's really what I try to focus on. And then it helps me get to understand them so much more. Did you find for yourself that going to see a therapist was beneficial after you were diagnosed, or did you feel like that wasn't an option for you? It was an option for me. I did. I did go see a therapist for a few, I went for a few months and I found it to be very helpful. You know, I think it's always powerful when a therapist can be in therapy. I think it's helpful because of just the work that we do. I mean, if we're seeing, I don't know, anywhere from seven to eight people a day, I mean, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. And so it's nice to have a mentor or have your own therapist so you can like process what's going on. So yes, I found it to be extremely helpful and also meditation and doing some mindfulness work really helped me. Now I've heard a lot about mindfulness. I'm just listening to you talking. I've heard so much about it, but I honestly, I don't really understand what is that? What does mindfulness mean? Like what, what is it? Mindfulness is, you know, a lot of people think it's meditation. It's not necessarily meditation. There is mindfulness meditation that you can do, which can be used through guided meditation. Mindfulness is just a state of awareness, being in the now, 
not thinking about the past, not going into the shoulda, coulda, woulda, and then thinking about the future, the what if, what if this, what if that. I call that future tripping. So being able to pull yourself back and focus on what's just going on in the moment. You know, today I'm not in pain. That's great. So I'm going to do a little bit of what I can do today. Tomorrow, I don't know if I'm going to be in pain. And I think when people have chronic pain, they they go into that. They go into the future tripping. Oh, gosh, well, I feel great today. What's it going to be like tomorrow? And so it's really pulling yourself back and just trying to focus on the moment, which I think can be very powerful yeah, for some people. But it takes a lot of practice, though. Yeah, like like I think just hearing you talk about future tripping, I've never given a title to that. But I have, as a disabled person, I constantly am like, what if this happens? I have to plan for this. I have to prepare for this. Like, I... Speaking of anxiety, I constantly live in this. I don't want to therapize you right now, but I do. <laughs> but I constantly live in like a state of like, I am, mm-hmm. I am uncomfortable because of I have to control everything because of my disability. And if I don't have control, I feel, I feel like chaotic a little bit. Right. No, that no, of course. And you actually bring up an interesting point because sometimes it's okay to have those thoughts. I mean, because what does that do? That actually motivates us in doing something. Anxiety is not always bad. And that's what I tell clients when they come in. They think that their world is ending because of their anxiety. And I said, well, let's see how it manifests with you. Right. And then we can talk about how you can use your anxiety. It can motivate you to get something done. It can motivate you to work harder at a goal that you have. I think sometimes we have to have a little bit of anxiety. Yeah, I I agree with you. I just think when it comes to disability, we are so often told, to, it'll be okay, don't worry about it. I, I oh, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so when you <laughs> or do, I hope you feel better. Oh, you'll be better. You'll yeah, be better. you'll be all right. Okay. Don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. You'll be fine. And when then, like, right. with Lyme or with CP, like, you're never not, you're never 100% fine. There's always something exactly. going on and you just learn to manage it. Absolutely, you're right. You just don't know, right? So I think that word uncertainty comes back up sometimes. Yeah, totally. Also, um, I ju- we just found out that Justin Bieber has Lyme. Do you feel like a celebrity because you too have Lyme? <laughs> Maybe after my book is published. <laughs> Maybe you can go on a speaking tour with Bieber. Maybe the two of you can I would hear. totally do it. You know who I would also love to connect with is Lady Gaga. She's got fibromyalgia. I would love for her to write the foreword of my book. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if she listens, but hey, Gaga, if you want to write the forward to Dr. Lee's book, or you know, Gaga, we need you. Like, Come or on. if you want to talk to me, like, I'm, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> let me know. Um, you know what's funny is that I actually I messaged her on Instagram. <laughs> what did she message? I, no, no, she didn't. But you know what? I told her all about my book, and you know, because you know, when you message someone on Instagram, they can like they can decline it or they can accept it, you know? And I'm, yeah. of course, with her being a super mega star, I, I can't even imagine how many messages she gets a day. I mean, I mean, hey, hey Gaga, this is when you want to, listen. It's like, I don't, I know you're not listening, but if you are, call me. Uh, <laughs> Come on, Gaga. <laughs> um, I want to shift to, uh, to, you know, there are so many, there are so few therapists working in the area of chronic illness, sexuality, and disability. There are so few that I've, I mean, I've talked to more and more in this kind of work, but like I said, when I was doing therapy, I spent hours and hours talking to my therapist about disability and kind of teaching her about disability as I was talking, which is really important for her, but also exhausting for me as the, as the client. 
Um, mm-hmm. Why do you think, that, like, in your professional opinion, why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it's such a rarity to connect disability and chronic illness in a therapy space? Well, I think some of it, it has to do with what the the therapist has to be comfortable with. You know, you know, there's therapists out there that are not comfortable doing sex therapy. There's actually quite a few couples therapists out there that don't even do it. And I cannot do couples work without talking about sex. Yeah. How do you, that's, <laughs> how do you be a couples therapist and not talk about like the, the reason they're a couple is because they're having sex. So, right. So there's that piece, you know, there's some therapists that don't want to do grief work because they're uncomfortable with death and dying. So there may be a therapist that is uncomfortable talking to someone or helping someone that has significant medical issues. Right. So I think it's a preference that therapists have. I think when they get out of school and they do their own thing, they start to really focus on what do I want to specialize in? I think that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is sometimes the client, you know, sometimes when someone has a disability or chronic illness, they are scared to go talk to someone. They're afraid about being judged. They're afraid they're not going to be understood. They're afraid, um, you know, just what's the therapeutic process or therapy process going to be like? So I think those are a lot of things that um, come into being. What I really like to see in the field now is that we're starting to see therapists that specialize in certain things because they've experienced it. So a lot of therapists who are kink and poly aware, they're also kinky and poly themselves. Um, and so I think that's pretty cool. So does that mean like for some sessions that I'm, t- I'm being half serious, but am I, this, is, this is a real question. For some sessions, would you come in in a harness and be like, hey? <laughs> like- <laughs> I wouldn't mind if my client did, but I don't think I would. But no, but if, <laughs> I if, a, if a client was like, "I'm uncomfortable like, with, I want to try leather, but I'm scared," can like, what would I? How do I get over that? Would you like as a as like immersion therapy? Would you be like, "Okay, one day I'm gonna just walk in in a harness and see how my client reacts"? Probably not. <laughs> okay. Try it out though. Maybe maybe <laughs> just one afternoon, just give it a shot. I don't know. <laughs> hey, you never know. I mean, I mean, I mean, maybe, <laughs> um, maybe. So, kind of piggybacking on, like, if the, if the client feels uncomfortable, if you had somebody come into your office and say to you, like, "Hey, I have, I'm having disability issues. I'm having like issues with my sex life because of disability or chronic illness, and I have a lot of shame about that, and I'm really angry all the time about it." Like, how would your approach as somebody who lives with chronic illness and disability, how would you approach it different, say, from traditional therapy? Um, first of all, I think what the approach that I use every time a client comes in, and I, mean, I mainly see folks that have you know chronic illness and disabilities and chronic pain, it's really about a joining process with them, uh, letting them know that they are in a safe place to talk, and really, first of all, doing the assessment with them and just sharing my approach. One of the things that I tell clients, and I think they like this, some therapists have an agenda when a client comes in. I don't have an agenda. And the reason why I don't have an agenda, it's because it's their session. I want them to come in, feel comfortable, talk about what they want. And most of the time when people come into therapy, they have something that they want to process and unpack. I think it's making them feel comfortable. And also there's another um, tool that is critical and it is the most important therapeutic tool, and that's listening. Mm -hmm. 
I find that if a client knows that you're listening to them and they're feeling welcomed, that's going to help with their shame. That's going to break down the shame and they're going to come back and see you. Yeah. And that's what I do. That's what I do in my sessions. I, you know, I have some clients that come in and they're like, I went to this therapist and I felt judged and I wasn't able to talk. And they had all these questions for me and they really had to get the paperwork done, but I was coming in so vulnerable. You know, my thing is hell if the intake gets done, it gets done the first session. If it doesn't get done, it can get done the next session. So it's about making them feel comfortable. And I think comfort in a therapist's office, like when I saw my therapist and she was really nice and super like sweet, but I remember every session she'd like pull out this big yellow legal pad and would like click her pen and be like, okay, Andrew, start talking. And I'd be like, uh, Oh okay. yeah. Like, I don't, oh. I have, yeah. I don't, I don't know. You know, every therapist has their different approach, but I never take notes in my sessions. I am present with them. I listen to them. It's really like having a conversation. I it's mean, coming in and just it talking. It should kind of be like this. I yes. Like, it should sort of be like this because, like, all you want from them is, as the client, as somebody who's been on the other side, and we've both been on the other side, but as, for mm -hmm. me, as, as a client, like, I want somebody who just wants to chat. And if, I'm, if I want to, you know, swear and be, and just get all the feelings out, then that's what I want to do in the room. Um that's how I, that's my approach. It's just like what you and I, what we're doing right now. It's having a conversation, unpacking, you know, things that are bringing up an issue. And I think we have to also note is that, you know, therapy is not always about a problem. People just love to go. They love to share their experiences. And one of the things that I like to focus on is strengths in people. And sometimes it's not about their disability. They're comfortable seeing me because they know that I specialize in that. It's like someone that's LGBTQ. They know that I'm queer, so they feel comfortable seeing a queer therapist. Um, yeah. There's other things that they want to come in and talk about. Yeah, it doesn't have to always center around the queerness. Like, And if you're a disabled person, you going to therapy doesn't always have to center around your disability either. Absolutely. Or it totally can. Like, it it really depends. Um, yeah, it depends on the client and what they want to talk about and what they want to unpack. You know, I've got some clients that come in, they've accepted their disability and their illness. They want to learn to be sexual again with it, or they want to learn to connect with other people. But then yeah. I also have clients that come in and they haven't yet, and they've just been diagnosed, and it's a trauma to them. You know, they're really scared. What's going to happen to my body? Yeah, and I think those are conversations like me with my primary disability is CP, but then I have a mm -hmm. bunch of other underlying disabilities as a result of that that have kind of manifested over time. And I remember when I started seeing those symptoms and being symptomatic that way, I would, I got really scared. I was like, oh my God, my body's changing. Like, how do I, how do I deal with all this? So like, let's look at those two, let's look at those two cases for a second. So if somebody comes in and is like, I, I'm, I fully understand that I have this disability and I want to start fucking now. Like, how would you? How would you, like, what would you, how would you, how would that be different from somebody who walks in your office and is, like, scared of what could happen? Well, if someone comes in and they've accepted their illness or disability and they come in and they're like, hey, I want to learn how to fuck better or I want to get back into fucking or whatever I need to do, I talk about their desires. What is it that you love about sex? What parts on your body do you have sensations that can make you sexual again? You know, because we have to remember sex is about pleasure. It's not about a performance and you can do anything you want during wow. sex. Wow, can you say that? Can you say that loud over the people in the back? Because I feel like 
I feel like <laughs> most people forget that sex is about pleasure, not about performance. And I feel like as a disabled person, sometimes I have to perform as if yes. I'm as if I'm yes. not like as if I'm not disabled in the bedroom. And so, like, I'm starting to learn for myself that when I'm getting down with a a sex worker or a dude that I'm seeing, or like mostly sex workers, because that's how I'm getting sex right now. But but it's mm-hmm. really fun to just let go and to just relax a little bit and I constantly have to remind myself stop performing stop like making the well, noise like you think he wants to hear just enjoy yourself you're absolutely right and so I think when folks can come in and they can hear that it makes them become more sexual again I can have fun in the body that I have now I can uh, get creative with my sexuality I can feel what's pleasurable to me because with a life restricted by chronic illness and disability, sex is the one thing that can be so pleasurable. And yeah, because it takes you out of that. It, it doesn't stop the restriction, I don't think, but it stops you from thinking about the restriction for a minute. Absolutely. You're able to like distract yourself and focus on what's happening with your body as you are having sex. You know, there's something coming out in the research literature now that's fascinating that Folks that have chronic pain, they're like getting into more BDSM play. Yeah, they're able to focus on their good pain versus their bad pain. I think it's amazing. I think it's incredible. And I think we should have more of those discussions with BD- BDSM kingdom and pros and all those people should be part of the conversation because they really pioneered that before the research got involved. Exactly. I think that would be amazing. And I'm so happy to, um, I put in a proposal to speak at the next ASEC conference on exploring sexual communication, pleasure and freedom for gender minorities with chronic pain and disabilities. And I really, there's this area in the proposal where I talk about how people are becoming more sexual in their bodies and they're focusing on other types of play because it can be somewhat of a distraction to them. And plus, you know, what's so great about BDSM is that it takes you out of your comfort zone. Like someone that is like a, let's say a subordinate in an organization, but they're a total dom in the bedroom. I think that's hot. I mean, I may be getting, I may be getting a little bit excited by this conversation right now, but yeah, correct. <laughs> it's amazing. I think, I think it serves so many purposes and it's so empowering. I, I totally agree with you. And I think, I just think if, if, look, if, if, if hitting you in a way that's comfortable for you stops your chronic pain, do more of that. Like, that's great. Or just like, yeah. Or like the role play of it and the emotional bond that you have with someone as you do it. I think it's amazing. And, you know, I think it also serves a great purpose of, of communicating because when you're in a play scene, I mean, the communication is so critical. So it helps you even improve with that. What feels good to you? What doesn't feel good? Of course, you're saying code words in a play scene. You can be saying red, yellow, green, you know, t- you know, for you to slow down, things like that. So I think it's very empowering. And that's what I want to talk about at the conference. What, what do you, what do you, what was your kind of coming back to your sexuality moment? Like when you, when, so you had Lyme, you were feeling desexualized, you were feeling like undesirable. What was your moment of like, I want to do this again? I think when I actually started feeling better and I didn't feel as depressed, I was like, I really want to do this now. Like, I want to get back into being a sexual being. I want to have fun. I'm going to learn how to live well with this. I'm going to pace myself. I'm going to see how I do. I think it was a lot of, a lot of like, I did a lot of like just self-reflection on myself. And I think that's what really helped me cope with it and move on. 
Plus, I have to say, I think being a therapist helped me. You know, kind of like, what do I, what do I do with my clients? You know, I need to do that for myself. And I found that to be empowering too. That's so awesome. Like, but what I, what, I was asking kind of more specifically, like, what was the sexy moment that you were like, okay, I'm good. Like, I'm, I want to try now. Um, I think for me, it was the fact that I was coping well with it. And I just woke up one morning and started touching myself and it was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I miss this. I do have feelings again. Oh, I, I am sexual, you know? Were you were you with your partner at the time? I was single at the time. I was totally single with, with this. And that's what made it hard, too. I mean, I had a buddy that I got with every once in a while. And so when I was feeling better, he came right on over. And so, like, awesome. Great. That's great. Did you... <laughs> With your with your like sex buddy at the time and, and eventually your partner, did you have to explain like, hey, this is Lyme, this is what I live with? Like, how was that disclosure? I think, you know, the disclosure is really hard for folks. Um, and with my friend at the time, he knew me very well and he knew about it. But, you know, I have a lot of single people that I see with disabilities and they really struggle with disclosing it. And so oh, they yeah. come in. Disclosure is oh, a fucking beast. It's a beast. It's, it's horrible. It, it is. It is. It's such a beast. And so they want to process um, how would they go about doing it. And so we talk about that and their comfort level and if they really want to or not. Um, because, you know, with some disabilities, some are invisible, right? So you don't, you know, you, you may not look like you're sick, but you are sick. And so being able to talk about that on a date or if you are going to hook up with someone or have sex, it can be quite traumatic. You can actually bring you back to that trauma again. So it's really the comfort level of the person. But I find that when they get to a place of acceptance where they've accepted their disability and they're like, okay, I can learn how to live well with this. I can be sexual with this. I'm going to disclose it and I'm going to do it. And if someone wants to turn me down, hey, it's their loss. Let them do that. I'm going to keep moving on. So I think it's up to the individual. Again, it goes back to the idea that everyone's different. Yeah, totally. Did, and so how did, like, how did you disclose? Were you like, hey, so got bit by a tick, but I'm so- <laughs> Like, I'm so down to fuck you. Like, how did you, what was your? <laughs> well, you know, I think being single, I have to tell you, I think it took a little bit of pressure off of me because I didn't have to really tell anyone. But when I was finally uh, becoming sexual again, and, you know, I had my, we were talking to my friend about it, and he came over and I said, you know, I've, you know, you know what I've been going through. I've had a lot of low desire. I just haven't felt well. I've been sick. I said, but now I'm feeling good and I want to take the clothes off. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, it's just, just like that, hey? Awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. How did, and when you, when you saw your current uh, husband, of, mm-hmm. how, current, current husband sounds weird. Your husband, did you, did you, how did you have the, have to have the discussion again? Like, hey, sweetheart, guess what? I, you know I, what? I think that I have, like, dealt with it so well over the years. Like, I feel like now it's just one part of who I am. It's still important, right? But I feel like there are so many other things when I met my husband that were so important. I think it was brought up and it was like, oh, okay, well, if you're not in the mood, you're not in the mood, right? And I think all couples go through that, whether you have a disability or not. I mean, you need to have that constant 
uh, communication about sex. Cause I feel like at its heart, sex is about communication. So just talking totally. about it, I think really, really helps. And just, and hopefully, you know, having someone that's just understandable and that can show empathy. That's so important. Yeah. And the empathy part's really important too. I've noticed just from talking with you that you have a really strong sense of humor and a really like funny sense of humor. Did your sense of humor kind of get you through all those hard moments? Oh gosh, my sense of humor gets me through life every day. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it does. I think that, you know, there is a part of us that has to, we really have to laugh and we have to dig into our humor. And I think in a way it can be a great coping skill. Um, But, you know, there are folks that have a lot of depression and they use their humor all the time to cope. And I think it's also important to really feel your feelings and what they are and to talk about it. But I absolutely feel like humor is amazing and it can get you through so many things, particularly in illness. Yeah, I mean, I use, but I I agree with you. I sometimes will use humor with my cerebral palsy and my IBS and all my other stuff to mask how I'm really feeling, which is fucking angry. And I'm trying to stop doing that and try to like put myself in place. Like, no, this isn't funny. You can feel mad about this. It's okay to be mad about it. And you can, you can laugh about something else another time. Well, you bring up a a great point because one of the things that my, in my book, chapter five of my book is about acceptance. And I think that when you can accept and learn to live well with your disability, I think that's when you can start getting into your emotions and you don't have to put things off because your thoughts are just thoughts, right? So if you get an unpleasant emotion, I always recommend don't wrestle with it because when you wrestle with it, you get more angry, but if you let it come in and you're like, Hey, you know, I'm just fucking angry today. Maybe tomorrow I'll feel better. Just accept that and and be in that moment. And that's okay. And sometimes you don't have to, you don't have to use the humor all the time. Yeah. And I think for a lot of disabled people listening, that's really important. You can be, you can be mad about your disability, but my thing too is like, be mad about it. But I'm starting to realize that you have to do something with that anger, like journal it out or like do something. Yeah masturbate if you can or like you know do something with that anger so that it's so that it's doesn't sit there and i think a lot of people in the dis in the disability community are very angry and they have a right to be but i feel like we need to start doing something productive with that so that it moves us forward i agree with you i think there's so many different uh healthy well i don't know if i want to say healthy but just like coping skills that can benefit you then sitting with your anger, letting it boil. I think you, you're right. We have to take that anger and we have to put it somewhere. We all get angry. It's, a, it's an emotion that we all have and it's not unhealthy. It's not bad to have anger, but it's what we do with the anger. Exactly. I think, yeah. and I think you know, in, in my experience being a disabled person and kind of working in disability activism, we're angry a lot, but we're not doing enough with it. So my goal is to, my goal this year from, from a lot of my work is to, be pissed off at a lot of stuff, but then find a way to teach somebody else about it or give somebody tips on how to not be an ableist asshole or to like, how do I, how can I give you the tools to stop being an asshole so I'm less angry? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and and talking about that, one thing that's so powerful about therapy, I think, is just when you have the anger, Um, whether that's due to a relationship, financial stress, anxiety, disability, just talking about it helps in a safe space. That's why people really love therapy. And I think people get scared of that. But once you get into it, 
And the, and the whole goal is to connect well, right? If you go into a, a session with a therapist and you don't connect the first time, you're not coming back. <laughs> no, certainly. You're, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're not, yeah, you're not coming back. So you want to be able to do that. And I think just being able to process it really does help. I think so too. I think, I think, I think sitting in a place where you can be totally yourself for an hour with somebody and know that they won't be writing huge copious notes about like how weird it is, whatever you're saying, that feels nice too. Exactly. Absolutely. Right on. Um, so let's say I was to come into your office and I wanted to start talking to you about chronic illness and sexuality, but I was scared and I wanted to like, I wanted to disclose to you that I think I have this. How do you, how would you, what kind of advice would you give to, to a client coming in who wants to disclose these things to a therapist but doesn't know where to start? Um, I usually let them know we'll start where you want to start because sometimes they'll come in and they will give me their information about what's going on, but they don't want to go deep yet because they just met me. They haven't built a trusting relationship with me yet. So I really, again, it goes back to not having the agenda and kind of letting them know I'm ready to start wherever you want to start, especially if someone has trauma. Like I only go there when the client is ready to go there. But I have found that in my work, after having a few sessions, they start to open up more because they're feeling more comfortable. You know, we don't start going deep into the work right away. Some clients, like I said earlier, they will come in and they've accepted things. They're ready to like, you know, do new things in their life. But I think when someone's got so much shame around it, you know, it's it can be very difficult, especially if they have like a kink or a fetish, like they will sometimes come in and it's like, oh, I've got this fetish. And I'll say, well, what is it? And I've, and I've had clients before go, I'm not ready to tell you yet. <laughs> and I go, okay, that's cool. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about something. Let's talk about something different if you want. You know, like, it's it, super hard for you to help them if they're like, I have a fetish, but ha, you don't get to know yet. Like, well, thankfully they end up eventually talking about it, you know, and it, it takes a while for that to happen. So usually when someone comes into therapy, they have other things that are going on, just not one you know, one problem or one issue or something. So yeah. then we talk about other things. So I think to answer that question, it's really just to help them feel comfortable. It's joining with them. Hell, we may talk about the weather for a while, or we may talk about politics. You know, this is Washington, D.C. So we talk about all kinds of things. <laughs> I mean, you probably, I mean have a, you probably have a wealth of things you could talk about for a good hour and a half. Yeah, there's so many things. So, but eventually I find that they, they end up going there. And, you know, again, it may be the first session. It could be the second session. Hell, it could be like 10 days later. Um, but that's how I usually approach it. Okay. Uh, that's good to know. And that's important. I think, I think meeting a client where they are is really good and, and like letting them come to you in whatever space they're in is great. And just giving them a space to be, to be, uh, to feel however they feel about it is important. Um, yes. I want to talk about your book in a second, but I, I had a bunch of questions that came to my mind as we were talking. How, as a therapist, when I, when I went to do therapy a couple of years ago, my therapist's office was so inaccessible to my wheelchair so inaccessible for my disabled space like i could never fit it was always in i had to like crunch my wheelchair in the office it was really really inaccessible to me as a disabled person how would you as a therapist make your office both accessible to a disabled client and exciting or no not exciting <laughs> and, uh, 
and inviting as a well, I think therapist. It's, it's always, I, I find that it's important for offices to have a calmness to them. I don't like those lights that you turn on uh, because they give me, you know, the lights on the ceiling. I, I'm trying to think of what the fluorescent lighting yeah, or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, they give me a headache. They actually trigger a headache for me. So I have lamps in my office. It's very calming. I have a big office. So someone that may be in a wheelchair, they're not crunched coming in. They have more room to be in the office. I also think therapists need to um, watch out for their chairs that they have in their offices, like in the waiting area, because someone um, may be bigger and they can't fit in the chair. So yeah. chairs without the arms, I think are better to have for that. Um, I think you just want to have a lot of room. You know, if you're in a tight space, it's going to be very difficult for someone. Someone just to have a large enough area for them to be comfortable, you know, comfortable in, because that's really what it's about. You know, if you go to a therapist for the first time and you're not comfortable in the environment, well, then you're not going to go back again. Yeah, so exactly. you want to make sure that the space is comfortable. And um, one of the things that I, I ask my clients, too, especially if I've, after I've established a great relationship with them, what do you like about my office? <laughs> or or they may they may comment on certain things. So I think. I think it's just having a big space for them to, for people to move around in, for people to get through. Um, I think that's critical. Yeah. And I think, the, I think the bigger, the better, because if, I, if I'm not comfortable with you as a therapist, maybe I want a bunch of space between you and me for the first session. And then, yes, yes, as I get, yes. As I get like comfy with you, then we can get a little bit closer and a little bit like more intimate where I can tell you stuff. But the first session, I remember when my therapist and I sat down, we were like, so cramped i was like this feels really i don't know if i like this like i wanted to be far away because i wanted to let my emotions have their own seat almost in the office it makes you uncomfortable right and i mean when you're coming in to meet a therapist for the first time i mean you really want to be you want comfort right you want to feel heard you want you want all of that so yeah you want that yeah and i certainly did um now i want to ask you about your what kind of like we talked about kinks a minute ago so what kind of kinks do you have <laughs> you know what i like i don't know if it's a i don't know if it's a kink but i really like i think it maybe it's a fetish it's definitely a fetish i like beards me too why are we not best friends <laughs> How do we? <laughs> they're just so hot. They're they're hot, right? I mean, they're just they're I super like, super hot. I yeah, like because I can't grow one. My beard is like a patchy mess of weird. Same here. I can't I can't grow one. Before I was a psychotherapist, I was an actor in New York City for a good five years, and I was in a play. Wow, hang on, that's such that's such a departure <laughs> from what you're doing now. Wow, okay. I know, and so I had to grow a beard and for the show it was a greek tragedy that i was in and let me tell you something my beard was a tragedy because it was like <laughs> <laughs> it was so patchy in so many areas it looked awful it was awful so my husband has a beard he's bald and he's bearded so i have I, seen your husband and if i can say your husband is a very attractive man well thank you <laughs> So I love, I love beards. I don't know. There, that's, and, and there's nothing hotter than a man that's in a harness with a beard. I mean, again, <laughs> why are we not best friends? How do I, how, can we go to sex events together, please? Yes. You got to come to Mal. So it just, it, it, you know, that's, that's something that I really, I just, I just really like. I mean, 
There's probably other ones. I mean, I would have to think about some things, but that's like the number one thing that I actually love on a man. Yeah, I'm all, and I also really, me personally, just total sidebar. I love body hair. Body hair is my favorite thing. It's if amazing. You have, if you have good chest hair, I'm like, yep, yep. I my pants are down. Let's go. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's my jam. Um, yeah. So how does how were your experience with Lyme? Now we talked a little bit about how it affected your like sexual desires, but like how does it now affect your sex life with your husband? You know what? It really it it really doesn't now. It doesn't affect it at all. I have high desire. Um, I don't have any dysfunctions that are going on. Um, it doesn't. It, I would say it doesn't at all. Not like it did, like when I was first diagnosed and I was going through like the crisis of it and the stabilization period, that's when it affected it. Now, it it really doesn't. I mean, I can have joint pain and still have desire, which I think is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think because you mentioned that like desire is so, was something that waned for you, the fact that you can be sore and so like, no, I want to, I still want to fuck you, but I'm sore today. Right. And I mean, you have to realize when you are having some pain, do something different in the bedroom. You don't have to do this one position that's going to give you pain. Right. So you use a lot of pillows. Do you use like, what is you can get, you can use pillows. Absolutely. There's like sex pillows that you can get. I want to say like, I saw some of them on good vibrations. I think there's different pillows that you can get for your body to help you. And so that's one option that I think is helpful for people. But I always tell folks, again, it's going back to pleasure. You, I always tell them you have a sexual tasting menu. You have an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. And your entree does not have to be penetration. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. No, I agree with you. I don't, yeah. I don't penetrate a lot during the sex that I have with sex workers. Sometimes mm-hmm. I do. Sometimes like they want that and I want that too. But like most of the time, it's like, can we just cuddle and like touch each other? And see yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all about touch. Yeah. Some people, that's what they want. So I think it's really consent talking about the person and what it is that turns you on right what are your accelerators what are you really what are you really into and having that conversation and getting creative with it and that's what i love about sex therapy is that when one thing doesn't work we try this if that doesn't work well we'll try something different exactly and i think disability really lends itself to that and lends itself to that kind of creativity in the bedroom absolutely yeah and i've said that a bunch on the show so yeah be creative and crippled and have your best sex life um you know um, i always say too i always say um you gotta get curious about your partner and get creative with your sex yeah you have to find out like what makes both sides tick speaking of so um how did your like can you speak a little bit about how did your partner feel your current partner feel like when you like you said that he his reaction to you having Lyme was like well if you're having an off day then we won't deal with it like was he did he go through any kind of partner worries about that that he let you know about? No. I mean, we. the great thing with us is that I think one of the things that I love about our relationship is that we have check-ins all the time with each other on how we're doing. So Friday nights, that's like our night where we watch TV and we sit and we have food and wine and we talk. So we check in that way. I think you have to have solid communication. and when we first met and we talked about all that, we kept talking about it. And I think that helped. So there hasn't been any, you know, feelings about that. Plus, you know, we're also, we're not monogamous. We're, we, 
engage in consensual non-monogamy. So if there's something that he's interested in, he can go do that. <laughs> and I can go do that. So, you know, but we have to talk about that. Usually with monogamy and non-monogamy, there's, well, especially consensual non-monogamy, there's an agreement that you have. And I think yeah. you have to sit down and you have to review it and you have to talk about it. Like really thoroughly. It's like laid out because people get oh, hurt. Yeah. Yeah. It's a spreadsheet. <laughs> Amazing. You can, send me, you can send me your spreadsheet whenever you like. <laughs> Come and look at it. Uh, um, so I want to talk about your book, which I love the title of it. You're writing a book called Sex and Love When You're Sick. Which yes. The title is so important because we never, we, we always see sex and love in, in book titles. But I've never seen Sex and Love When You Were Sick before. So I think it's such an important title because it speaks to a community that needs... That it's about fucking time we had a book for us about this oh, stuff. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so needed in the research, too. There's a lot of, like, uh, research on it. There's some, like, articles, but there's not enough books. And there's not enough books for people who have disabilities and chronic illnesses and pain. And I think it's something that's going to be important. Yeah, I mean, and they also, what's I think important about the book you're writing, and, and I want you to tell me more about that in a second, but I think it's important that you have a chronic illness and you're writing this book. It's, I think that puts you a step ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I, in the introduction, that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about my experience with Lyme's disease in the beginning of the book. And then I'm going to, the book is designed like an arc. So it kind of starts with a problem and then it goes into like resolution on being able to uh, reclaim your sexuality due to disabilities and chronic illness. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, it's so needed. Like we have, there's one book that I don't know if you heard about it. It's the ultimate guide to sex and disability that we've. Yes. I love it. Yes. But that book was published, great, in, 2000, it was published in 2007. 2003 actually. So it's, it's. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> it's like it's almost 20 years old. So I love that you're putting out new stuff. How do you think, how do you, because we talked a little bit about research in this episode, how do you think your kind of work in chronic illness and sex and disability will change the way that it's researched? Oh, it's going to change the way it's researched because I'm going to be talking more than just the whole heteronormative aspect of it. Like I'm, I have seven characters in my book that are all clients that I've treated, but they're composites of people and gender minorities, trans client, non-binary client, gay client, a a female lesbian client and really being able to talk about um, kink and BDSM and polyamory in the book too. So that's where my book is going to be different and it's going to take a different spin. And so I'm really excited about it being a book for everyone. Everyone can read this book, not just couples. It's really geared towards couples, but someone who wants to be in a relationship with a chronic illness and disability can read this book. And so I think that's where my book will be different because when you're writing a book proposal, you have to put in that proposal how your book is going to be different from other books that have been published. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's so awesome. And if you, hey, if you need an advanced reader, let me know because I'll, I be, <laughs> I'll be glad to put some eyes on it. Um, what we were talking, you know, you do a lot of work with couples, and this is not a question that I wrote down or sent to you, but I just had it right now. Mm -hmm. If, let's say, you were to come in with a couple and one part of one one person in the couple was experiencing disability and the other, the other was not and having to become, say, their caregiver a little bit and do do more of the work for them as a caregiver and they were having shame about that and they wanted to, like, discuss that openly. What, what, did, what would you say to a non-disabled partner of a disabled partner who who was feeling weird about having their partner 
be disabled. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. That's what the book is about, especially when I'm talking about shame, sex, and illness in my book. So the thing is, is that, you know, sexuality in a relationship, it involves a wide mix of feelings and emotions. So when both the individual and their partner are battling a chronic illness or disability, the future of their intimate lives, I mean, it becomes uncertain. So both partners tend to feel a loss, right? Especially if it was an onset, um, especially if they were having great sex prior to the onset of a disability or a chronic illness. So I think that's something that really has to be talked about. So the ill partner or the person, the partner that has a disability may feel overwhelmed and shame about the changes in their sexuality. And so it's being able to meet the couple where they are and look at what's possible instead of once was achievable. And that starts to break it down. I find that when couples can come into a space and they can just have a dialogue about it, that's what starts to help. And so we talk about caregiver stress and how, you know, you can still do that, but you can also be a partner and a a sexual partner, a romantic partner. You know, sometimes I find that in my work, a lot of caregivers find it to be very rewarding. They, yeah. they, they enjoy it, you know, but I think it can get um, overwhelming at times. So we talk about the stress and with that caregiver has a lot of stress and anxiety. One of the things that I recommend is that they have their own individual therapy. Yeah. I, which totally, can, yeah. I totally agree with that because I just think like, and this is why for me, I kind of prefer being single because I don't have to worry about is my, is my partner going to have to take care of me? No. Because I can access sexuality in another way. But I, I've had a lot of people come to me privately in DMs and stuff and be like, hey, so I'm a partner to a person with a disability and I feel this. And I never know what to tell them because I'm like, oh, you like take time for you, but also you should still care for them. It's, it's a really weird, it's well, a really tough conversation. Yeah, it is a tough conversation. That's why it's so needed in therapy. Because the thing is, is that we have a partnership, right? But we also have our own autonomy in a relationship. So one of the things that I talk about with couples is really trying to find that balance in their partnership to where the caregiver can do some things on their own. They can enjoy their autonomy. They can take a break if it's possible, whatever they can do to cope with what's going on. And then really working with the other partner on their feelings of shame with it. And really talk about, well, what makes you love each other? What are the strengths in your partnership? I think that's a great thing to do is to shift and turn it to their strengths and what's great about them because everyone comes in and they're talking about the problem. Well, let's not take the entire session and always focus on the problem. Let's talk about what, what's sexy about both of you. <laughs> what, what turns you on about your partner? And I find that that kind of helped a lot. Yeah. Giving them something other, something else to focus on that isn't, that is totally outside of like, Oh, you're sick. Exactly. Um, I also love on your website, you have a really great blog where you really, I was reading the Getting Sexy with MS blog you have on there. Yeah. Um, at com, right? Yeah. Um, yes. So I was looking at the blog on there and Getting Sexy with MS and I loved the kind of step-by-step, here's how you can manage all these things, one, two, three. I love doing that stuff and I love seeing that in kind of what you do. And so do you do you feel really, how do you feel about putting these kind of tips out there so publicly for people to to access i love every minute of it this is my passion 
I just love that every day I can go to work and I'm helping someone become sexual again. I'm helping someone connect with their partner. I'm helping someone cope with their disability and illness and how they can still manage it. Because what I find is when you're able to manage your relationship and your emotions and your depression or whatever mental health issues that you're having with your disability, you can manage it better. There's a possibility of things opening up for you in a better sense. And I think when people first get diagnosed or they're even born with a disability, right? There's this shame, like, will I be able to do certain things in my life? So just really being able to to provide some hope to people. I'm going to be writing more blogs. I, I took a break because I was trying to get the book proposal done, which I'm almost finished with. And I'm going to put more blogs out there. I've been approached by a few more um, organizations to write for. So I'm really excited to, to get the word out more. And I, I really do believe that this book can be a success. I think that people are going to buy it. I think people that are caregivers are going to buy it. People that are single are going to buy it. People that are kinky, people that are poly, people that are queer are going to buy it. And I, I, can't, I can't wait for it to come out. <laughs> and so when is it dropping? Well, the proposal's almost finished. So once the proposal's done, I will start to work with a literary agent and a publisher, and then I will write the book. So the great thing, the exciting thing about this is that the book is not even done yet, but I've done so, I've really gotten the word out there. So my online platform and my proposal has been wonderful and speaking at different conferences. So I'm hoping the book will definitely be out in 2021. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I'm, if, again, if you get some chapters done, you need some eyes, let me know. Cause I'd love to, it sounds, it's, I'm just excited to see that title on a, on a bookshelf somewhere to see, ah. like to see that, to see sex and love when you were sick and have sick, not be this thing. That's like, Oh no, you're sick. It's so bad. But to be sick, like, yeah, you're sick, but here's a book for you. It's so important. It's so important. And that's why I'm writing it. You know, it's to really uh, contribute to the field of sex therapy, but it's also to help people. That's what it's for. It's, it's for that person that wakes up at two o'clock in the morning and they can't sleep because they've got so much shame about their illness or disability and they want to have hope. And that's what this book is. It's about hope. That's what it is. That's amazing. I'm just, I'm so excited for that. So two last questions I was thinking about when we were talking. So you do a lot of, you do a lot of conference speaking, much like I do. And I find yeah. that when I do that kind of stuff and I start talking about sex and disability in my experience a little bit, people are really nervous and shy to engage with me during the talk. But then three hours later, I'll get like 500 DMs, but like, cool, your talk was great. And I, oh, I have five questions. <laughs> um, do you ever feel like, when you're up there, nobody wants to talk to you. But then when you're the minute you get off stage, everybody wants to engage. You know, it's so funny that you bring that up because I presented at the 2019 um, sexual health conference in Chicago. And I did a talk on reclaiming sexuality with chronic illness. And I had so many people come out for it. It was amazing. Like big top people in the sex therapy field and New York Times bestselling authors were there. And wow. I did not talk to many of them. But afterwards, and yesterday, it's so funny that you brought that up because yesterday I finally got my feedback form from the conference. It took a long time to, to get it done, I guess. And so many people thought it was amazing. Amazing talk, much needed information. This is something in the field of sex education and sex therapy that's not being talked about enough. 
but many people didn't come up afterwards. I know it's so weird. You're like, you're like, I was, I was there. I was right there. My job is doing. You, you kind of wonder. You're like, am I? Was I great? Did I suck? Was I bad? And then you get the feedback, and it's like you were amazing. It's like cool. Why didn't you tell me when I was like? I find the thing that I get have trouble with is I'll, I'll put questions in the middle of my talk where I'll say like, okay, so what do you think you know about sex and disability? Nobody will. It'll be like dead silence for two minutes. And I'll be like, okay, so we'll just move along to the next slide because no one's answering. Like, cool. And I'll yeah. just move along. And then two hours later, I'll though somebody will be like, actually, here's my list of 25 questions I have about everything you just said. So, well, great. But So I loved your chapter in the sex positive book. Oh, thank you. I love it. I, that is such a great book. I'm still reading it. I love that it's like like little passages. Like you write, it's like a page or two on yeah, something really, as it relates to sex positivity. I really liked doing that. I mean, I wrote that. That's I wrote the, the book just came out, but I literally wrote that passage like two years ago. So when you said just there, when did I do that? Oh yeah, that. All right, okay, good. But it, it, the book just came out, but I literally wrote it like back in 2018 or 2017. Now. Um, yeah, it's a great so, book. It's a great book. Fantastic book. And I was like, I'm so excited to do that. But I just, I wish that when we're out there doing what we do and talking about this stuff, you can talk to us about it during our presentations, friends. So like if we're, if you see us chatting. Yes, in a please, like, in a yeah. And like message me on social media. I love talking about this topic. Go to my website, visit me, contact me, please. It's it, The word needs to get out there more. Maybe you'll see him in a harness at some point. Who knows? Maybe, um, maybe. Hey, you never know. And you and you know, Andrew, you have to watch the different color harnesses that you get because they all mean something. I mean, listen, my favorite color. <laughs> is, I I'm not a flagger, and I know what the colors mean. But my favorite color, generally, <laughs> for harnesses, is like blue or yellow, bright, bright. And when I realized what the colors were, I was like, oh. Uh, <laughs> I guess I can't wear that color anymore. I know. I had a friend that wore a red one. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, he, he thought he was going to get, um, yeah, he immediately, I think he like ended up leaving and went back and wore a black one. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening and you're like, what do the colors mean? Google heart, Google flagging colors and you'll hear, you'll understand what we're talking about. Um, exactly. So, Dr. Lee, this was an amazing chat. Thank you for for have for being on the show today. And I was really enlightened by a lot of the stuff you said, and it really kind of made me think more critically about therapy and disability and sexuality in ways that I hadn't really before. So, thank you so much for that. Um, how do the listeners? How can they get a hold of you? Um, you can go to my website, which is www.drleephillips.com. Or, and you can also uh, find me on Instagram at Dr. Lee Phillips. And I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Lee Phillips. Amazing. So I will put all of that in your, in, in the show notes for the show today. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Is there any final things you want to say to the people? Just embrace yourself with what you have and keep going day by day. Seriously, like live, live your best life the way that you want to live it. Live your best disabled slash chronically ill life, people. You can do it. It's it's possible. Yes. Thanks, Andrew. Right. Dr. Lee, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. It's All right, friends. There you have it. There's another episode of Disability After Dark. 
the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. I want to thank you, of course, for coming back each week so we can shine a bright light on these issues together. And I love just being a resource for you and being able to talk about this stuff. So thank you for thank you for sticking with us for all this time. It means a lot. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can follow us at DisAftDarkPod on Twitter. That's where we do a lot of polls about what kind of shows you want me to produce and what kind of things you want to hear on this program. And I'd love to hear from you on that Twitter account what sort of things you want the show to be about. So you can follow us there. If you want to follow my work specifically, you can follow me on Twitter at A-N-D-R-W. G-R-Z-A, so that's A-N-D-R-W-G-R-Z-A on Twitter. That's my own personal account. And you can follow my website, www.andrewgerza.com, where you can see some of my work, some of my past writings, and where you can book me to bring Disability After Dark and my work to your next event. So if you want to shine a bright light on all things disability, sexuality, and everything in between at your event, go to andrewgerzo.com and you can hire me there. If you want to reach out to me via email about the show, if you want to be a guest, if you want to submit a minisode, if you have a show idea, if you want to do all that with me, make sure you hit us up at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Alright friends, well that's the show and we'll be back next week to shine a bright light on more things. Disability, sexuality, and of course, everything else in between. I'm your host, Andrew Gerza. Have a good one. Bye! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations with music by Chris Ujiuji. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be distributed or used without express permission. Copyright 2020